morning. Can everyone grab their Bible and open to James chapter 4? See, this is the part where, where most, uh, you know, a, a Mother's Day message should come. But no one worry, because I called Hallmark, and I, I texted with Mother Nature a little bit, and I sent a letter to Hillary Clinton, and they all said that I can preach on whatever the Spirit is leading this morning. So we are good, we are in the clear, and we are going to be, Aunt Jemima gave two thumbs up, all the ladies gave the okay, so we're going to, we're going to preach, it's a joke, it's okay. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. So we've we've uh, we've talked about this before, and I, I just feel compelled to go over this again. What we're going to talk about uh, today is that there are only two perspectives that we can have. That there's a worldly perspective that we can have, and there's a godly perspective that we can have. There are only two. And see, a lot of times as believers, as people who love the Lord, uh, we, we can put on our godly perspectives. And I, I want to clarify what these two things are a, a little more as we continue on. Uh, but a, a godly perspective is a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting perspective. That when we face trials, when we're going through our day, that our posture and our main goal is how can I elevate and glorify Christ? That is a Christ-centered perspective. A worldly perspective is a self-centered perspective. That when things don't go my way, when injustice is coming toward me, am I going to think in the way the world tells me to think, or am I going to think in the way that I've actually been transformed by the renewing of my mind and that I possess the mind of Christ? We have two options. When things happen to us, when things happen in our life, there's a reaction point. Do you guys know we have a real ninja in our body? And he, he's not even here to hear this about himself, but his name is Milton. And Milton is a ninja. I want to tell you a quick story about Milton. One day, Milton's at my house. He's changing a light bulb. He's standing on a chair, and the light bulb slips out of his hands. I'm expecting it to shatter on the ground. But no, Milton catches it with his toes, standing on a chair sideways. Bloop. I would say quick reaction. See, we have, we have reactions that, that come about, and we choose to put on different lenses based on what happens. I hope everyone likes my sunglasses. Okay. 
Yes, I shop at Discovery. So in Christ, we have on, I have on my prescription glasses where I can see clearly when things start to happen. I can see it. I can anticipate. But when something bad happens, I can either choose to keep on my prescription glasses that allow me to see clearly or to put on the lens of the world. They transition a little bit. Do you see that when we face trials, when something happens in our day, we have a choice where we can either put on a Christ-centered perspective to see things clearly, or we can put on a worldly, godless, self-centered perspective. It's like driving in the car and the sun is intense. We literally get to points during our day, not just in our life, but during the day where we're saying, this is too intense right now. I need to put on a different lens. Oftentimes, the lens that we choose, just like the Israelites, is a lens that we used to wear when we lived in Egypt. This is the way I used to deal with things. This is the way I've seen people deal with things. And there's always this perspective battle that is going on before us. When I'm talking about the world, James is going to talk about the world. And when I talk about the world, I'm talking about the mass of people that do not know God and are therefore hostile toward Jesus Christ. There's a whole system. There's a whole pattern. There's an entire worldview of worldliness that we have to fight against putting on when we are feeling pressed, when we are feeling crushed, when the intensity is turning up, and we have to remain with a Christ-centered perspective. The world is always trying to pull us in. See, the world will be the loudest cheerleader of self-centeredness, the fastest driver of self-promotion, and the silent partner of self-hatred. The world wants to fan into flame inside of you that you need to think about yourself. You need to be consumed with yourself. What's best for you? This is ruining my day. Self-centeredness. The world is trying to fan into flame in you a desire to self-promote and to exalt yourself. Because isn't that what we try to do when we're feeling injustice or crushed? We try to exalt ourselves instead of letting God exalt us. See, what happens, the things of this world never satisfy, so it leads us more and more into self-hatred. Seeing that the person we thought we could become by following the ways of the world isn't happening and that we've disowned Christ in the process, and it leads us to a place of shame and self-hatred. That's where it wants you to stay. So many times when I'm feeling pressed, if I can just be honest, I'm longing f more for the absence of my problem than the presence of God. It's a perspective issue. That I want my problem to go away. I want to be justified more than I want God to be glorified. 
it's a perspective issue. <laughs> this last week I put on an ungodly perspective. I'm not going to go into the whole story. There was an injustice that I felt was being caused so deeply from something that happened in 2011, and it was coming back up, and I wanted to be justified. So I started exalting myself as I was trying to handle this situation. I was using what I used to use. I was using words of manipulation and trying to make someone feel small because I took off my lenses that allowed me to see clearly and I put on a different perspective. We're going to read in James chapter 4 today. James uh, is the half-brother of Jesus. And it's a really special book for a couple reasons. His real name isn't James, it's Yaakov, Jacob, just for those of you who are wondering. It's a special book because in John chapter 7, it talks about Jesus' brothers, and it says that his brothers, including James, did not believe in him. It's special because right after that happens in John 7, Jesus says this, he says that, the world will not hate you. And he's referring to because they don't believe in Jesus as Lord. He says, the world will not hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. This was being said to James. James, you don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. Well, something happens in Yaakov's or James' life where not only he embraces Jesus Christ as his Savior, but he becomes a leader of the Messianic community in Jerusalem. He's a pastor there. And Pastor James, Pastor Yaakov, has a word for us about this battling perspective that we find ourselves struggling with between worldliness and godliness. I'm going to read James Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Everyone say good news. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 to begin with, and I want to talk about this worldly or this self-centered perspective, and it's this. Self-centered perspective fuels lust-driven divide. A self-centered perspective, us, me, what's best for me, uh, how can I bring glory to myself, this perspective, this lens that we put on, what it does in us is it fuels a lust-driven divide. There are two divides going on. Remember the beginning in, in verse 1 where it said, what causes these quarrels and these fights among you? That there's a divide in the family of God when we live with this perspective. And then did you notice in, at the end in verse 4 where it said that those who wish to be friends with the world are enemies of God? There's a divide between our family and our father. Maybe right now you are feeling a divide with someone in this very room. I want to submit to you, is there a self-centered perspective that you have been putting on that is fueling a lust in you? Maybe it's not just a sensual lust, but it's a desire for something that you can't obtain. A desire uh, for something to be done, a forbidden object, something to happen that isn't for you. And it's driving a divide. Did you see in verse 1 where it talks about quarrels? It says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? There are a couple things that James is doing as he's, he's writing this down, as he's getting ready to deliver this. Uh, there are two main themes. One is the theme of war. A quarrel... It's not just like bickering, but a, a more uh, a, a correct sense of the word quarrel would be this war. It communicates longevity of fighting. You have an ongoing fight with someone even right now. Have you had an ongoing war with God that you are coming to face with right now? Ongoing a long-suffering war. These fights, you can picture them of more of the battle inside the war. He has this war picture going on, that this is a war, that we're in a war. But not only that, he actually shifts a little bit, and we're going to see it as we read through the text, that it's this picture of an adulterous bride. That when we desire a self-centered perspective to exalt ourself that it fuels this adulterous lust that drives divide in the family. And maybe you're here and you've experienced the pain in some way or another of adultery creating a divide in your family. He's drawing up this picture so that we can better understand the relationship that we have with God. 
He says, what causes these things among you? These quarrels, these fights. Is it not that your passions, and he's going to use words like this a couple times. He's going to talk about uh, passions and desires. The passions that he is talking about has a sensual connotation to it. It's this committing idolatry, which is adultery against God when we put on this perspective. He's saying, is it not the lust that is at war within you? You desire lust again. He says, you desire and you do not have. So then what happens? What does it say next? You murder. And you think about this for a second. Lust is defined as a strong, misplaced craving or desire, often of a sexual nature for something that is not for us. Focus on the family would define it as a conscious decision to pursue a forbidden object. In 1 Peter 2.11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions, lust, of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. It's a battle. It's a fight. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires which is lust, of the flesh and the desires, same word as lust, of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And as James is writing all of these things down, he says, you do not have, so you murder. It's this lust-fueled desire that's driving a divine a divide literally from life to death, murder. Well, where have we seen this happen? Is not King David the very picture of what's going on? That he desired something that wasn't for him. He desired a woman that was someone else's wife, and in the end, it leads to murder. That he coveted, and it says that he could not have. Death took place. A divide took place. Look at verse 2. Second, uh, partway through, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And it's kind of like a, a weird thing to throw in there, right? He's kind of going pretty hard against adultery and against lust. And he's like, listen, you don't have because you don't ask. And it's like, that's like a very weird place to, to put that. And what James is talking about right here is that if you desire, your desire is satisfaction wherever you are, whatever God has already given you, the relationships, uh, the life, it, it all comes down to perspective. If you desire to have a Christ-centered perspective in whatever is going on, you can ask. You can just ask, God, give me a new perspective. Lord, I've been wearing these sunglasses for far too long. Will you help me see clearly again? 
Will you help me for my eyes to come off of myself and my own self-centeredness and to go back on the sun? He says, you don't have this. You don't have this satisfaction because you don't ask. And remember, there's still this, this marriage symbolism, this, this pure marriage symbolism, an adulterated marriage symbolism that's going on. And he's saying, you're not finding enjoyment and fulfillment with the marriage you're in, drawing the picture of between us and God and using that perspective, because you don't ask. Imagine that you feel far from God. You don't feel like you have intimacy with God stirring in you. you. You feel like your connection is gone, that it's broken, that you don't hear from him anymore. You feel like there's a distance. The good news is, my friends, that we can ask him and he desires to grow that in us. And we're going to get to the end of the chapter where there's like this prescription Pastor James writes out this prescription to give us. Hey, do you want to have intimacy with God again? Here, do these things and wash as it gets stirred back up in you. A self-centered perspective fuels. It is literally the fuel of a lust-driven divide. He says, let's look at verse 3. This is heavy. Can you feel the heaviness of this right now? Can, can you feel the heaviness of this? Maybe it's causing you to think about, uh, about things that you've done wrong in the past or marriage issues you have. Let the Lord shepherd you through those things right now. He wants us to get this. He wants us to get this so much. Not only that is it just this relational picture, but it's between us and the Lord. Do you see that when we live in a self-centered way, that that is us committing adultery against the Lord because we have these idols that we're going to worship. We have these idols that we're going to serve. It's okay that this feels heavy because at the end there's hope. Amen? All right, let's keep going. So he says, when you ask, and he says, but when you do ask, you do not receive, verse 3, because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. Guess what the word passions is again? It's lust. Do you see how many times he's alluding to this throughout the first three verses? There's lust in your heart. You have this desire for something that it wasn't meant for you. In verse 4 he says, You adulterous people. Driving it again, that we have this marriage with God, that it's supposed to be this beautiful picture, right, of Christ and the church coming together. And he says, but you acted adult in adultery. This is the same when Jesus says, you adulterous generation. We see these words come out. And in verse 4, the, the translators, uh, this is actually true, the translators, instead of saying adulteresses, which is, is the real word. Uh, they didn't want to just think that women were the only ones who would commit adultery, so they trains the translation a little bit. Can you see how maybe yours says adulterous people? I think the CJB says adulterous bride. It, it gets kind of to the heart of it. Why does James say it like that? Why, why doesn't he understand that men and women can commit adultery against each other or against God? Well, because he's continuing to demonstrate that we are the bride of Christ. 
That's why he's using this language. He's saying, don't you see that you are a bride? That you have been called to glorify the Son and you're not doing that? So he says, you adulterous people. The translators chickened out, basically. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's pretty crazy when you think about this illustration of adultery that James is working through right now. And he doesn't say that someone who is a friend of the world or connected to the world or having a deep desire for the world. But he's literally saying that someone who just wishes to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. That's a pretty intense claim. That it doesn't have to be that you're just living in the world. It doesn't have to be that you have a strong desire and you just think about all the time the things of the world. That if you even wish in your heart to be a friend of the world. This is the only time we see this Greek word that's used for friendship. That if you wish this, you, you, you hope for this. That you have positioned yourself as an enemy, or the little translation is, as a hater of God. Just for wishing to be a friend. Do you ever, like, meet someone that you really didn't know, and you're just like, oh, man, I wish I could be their friend? You ever feel that way about people? I felt that way about Johnny when I first met him. I was like, always wearing his cool beanie. I'm like, man, I wish I could be his friend. And we are friends. That's amazing. <laughs> John's like, yes, leave me alone. <laughs> Wishing to be a friend. Do you wish to be a friend of the world? Are you getting too friendly with the world right now as you are on your journey with Christ? I have something for us. It's this. Five signs that you are getting too chummy with the world. Too chummy. Chummy just has that connotation. Pastor Slaughter, can you come up here? I don't know why, but when I hear the word chummy, I just kind of think of like people going like, yeah, a little chubby, chubby, and just kind of like, eh, friends. <laughs> like we're chummy, you know? I, what do you think of? I think, I think exactly what you just said. See? Chubby, chubby, and... Chubby and chummy. Yeah, chummy. It's because we're chummy together. That's how we both thought the same thing. And I'm chubby. You're, you're doing good. I don't know. <laughs> oh, great, man. All right. Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, I mean, we're chummy. You can stay up here if you want, I guess. I... <laughs> okay, five signs. <laughs> this is why this is a big deal. Okay, so Romans 12, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this real quick because it's, it's stirring in me. Romans 12, verse 2. 
It says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the So there's only two options. We're either being conformed to the world, and this isn't just like uh, desiring the world. This is taking on the character of your friend. You ever notice when uh, you have friend, and just pretend you have a friend named Lucy, and Lucy is your friend. You hang out. But when Lucy hangs around Stephanie, who's like meh of a person, that Lucy starts acting like meh of a person. Do you know what I'm saying? You have friends, you're like, where did my friend go? And they're like, well, I don't know. I'm just kind of hanging out with, you know, this guy over here. And you're like, but this guy doesn't lead you to make good choices. Now you're not making good choices. You know friends like that? Ever been that person? Like you have a friend who has certain mannerisms. And then like you come home and you're like, I'm going to try this mannerism out. Because he doesn't. It looks pretty cool. You know what I'm saying? No? Just me? Okay. (laughs) Okay, sweet. See, being conformed to this world is literally taking on the patterns, taking the character, uh, taking the perspective, and then walking out in that. And the problem is when we're trying to battle for the kingdom, battle for Christ, trying to renew our mind. So we're either conformed or we're transformed. Okay? And this word, word transformed is actually the word that's used for the transfiguration where Jesus transfigured and he shined bright white like a light. So we're either being conformed into death, to destruction, to the ways of this world, or we're being transformed, and how are we doing it? By the renewing of our mind, which is such an amazing thing. Listen, this is why we read the word of God. This is why we meditate on the word of God. This is why we enter into God's presence. Because when we do things like that, our mind begins to be renewed. And we begin to transform and transfigure into an image more like Jesus. This is what Romans 2 is saying. So you get one path, and it's really hard when you're believing lies and you're coming out of the world when you then go to the world to be more conformed into the lies that you're trying to break off. You see what I'm saying? That we come out of the world and we're carrying the baggage of all these lies as we're being sanctified, as we're being renewed, as we're being transformed, and we're trying to break these things with the truth. Sometimes they still hang on to us. And then we enter just for a season, we enter into some worldliness, something that will promote a self-centeredness in us. Maybe it's through the music you're listening to. Maybe it's through the friends you're with, the places you're going. And it's actually bringing us deeper and back into the lies that we so desperately want to be set free from. You're either being conformed to the world or transformed. There is no neutral ground. That's how it works. And it happens because we get too chummy with the world. Okay, I want to walk through five things. Because our pastor, James Yakov uses this uh, adultery language, I want to try to paint a picture for you of some of these things almost as though what I'm talking about is being personified. Okay, let me give you an example. 
I want to I want to talk about maybe the one of the ways that the world tries to trap you and bring you in and commit adultery against God is through this idea of worldly success. Through what you have, through your belongings, through your position, how people see you. So I'm going to talk about worldly success in these next five points, but I'm going to almost personify it as if it were a person. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's try it out. Here's sign one that you are too chummy. Dream. You begin to dream, to think about, to meditate on this person whose name is Worldly Success. That you're doing something different. You are out being, you're trying to be focused with your family. And this person, Worldly Success, keeps popping in your mind. You think about success, that well, what, if, what if I can have this? What would it look like? How would people see me if I had this much money or this kind of house or if I had this position? And you start to dream about what life would look like with this person. Success. You see how I'm personifying success? You see that? All right, cool. We're going to keep going this way. Real quick, I just want to ask you, is there something that you constantly dream about, meditate on, think about, plan out that is connected to this world? Like, no, but I'm living for the kingdom. Those things are, you're too chummy with the world when you begin to meditate. And instead of renewing your mind on the things of Christ, you're conforming to the pattern of the world through painting a picture of self-centeredness. You dream about the things of the world. Here's sign number two. Excitement. Excitement. That when this person's name pops up, you start to get a little excited. You feel a little joy rush into you, what you perceive as joy. A little happiness come over you. That when someone talks about success, you start to think about, wow, I can't wait till I can spend a little time dealing with this and, and learning more about this and investing myself. I'm, I'm kind of excited. I feel like I have a new uh, attitude about this whole thing. You know what I'm talking about. There's an excitement that's coming of being around this person, success. Three, you begin to learn. You educate yourself about this person's success. The likes, the dislikes, how they react. Conversation starts to deepen. You start to look for common ground. You're becoming too friendly. You're becoming too friendly. This is a warning. This is a warning from Pastor Yaakov. This is a warning. Hey, even the, the, the desire, the wishing for friendship, this is starting down the road of adultery against our God. Warning, chummy, warning, friendship, warning. Trying to learn about it, cultivate a, a depth with it. You linger. You linger around this person's success. You try to go where success is. 
You push off your earthly responsibility, your family responsibility to be where this is. You're chasing after it. You're lingering around it. You're trying to put people in your life who model this because you desire it. Talking about success still. It's this picture of an affair that's developing, being too chummy, too friendly with the world. Here's the last thing you believe. Not only do you dream and think about it, but it, it, it excites you. You begin to learn, to develop a depth of relationship. You linger around it. But then you believe that this person, success, is actually your path to freedom. That if I can just have this, I'm going to feel and experience the freedom that I've been longing for. These are five signs that you're getting too close, that you're getting too chummy with the world. And I pray that right now God would reveal who that person is to you. Is there something that you've been chasing that is of the world, that you've been spending time and energy into, that you've been enjoying and being excited about, and in return you are starting and you're kicking off a wild affair with the world that is going to leave you broken and dead, just like you were before? See, James chapter 4 is trying to create this certain sense of language. It's using this, this language that is trying to bring this picture of how we have committed adultery on God when we have gone after the idols of this world. We get to verse 5. He says... Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? How many people have a translation that says something like pretty different than that? You can raise your hand up high. Okay. Saying something a little different. Some of the other translations say something more like this. That do you not know that the spirit in us uh, lusts after envy or desires envy. It's talking about the human spirit. That when you were born, you have a human spirit. And did you know that when we come into a relationship with Christ, 1 Corinthians teaches that the Holy Spirit and our human spirit become one. That's how it works. But this unregenerate human spirit that exists inside of us, the desire is for lust. The desire is for the things of this world. It envies that's how one translation says it. The one I read says, but no God. It gives this picture of no God is the one. Like a husband is jealous over us. He's jealous for the spirit that he put inside of us. He wants us. See how it's a little different? I believe at the end of the day, both of those things are true. That our human spirit, our human bend is to always go after something more. 
I want something more. I desire something more, something different, something greater, something more shiny, something that will fulfill me. That's how our human spirit is. But God in his graciousness and his mercy has put his Holy Spirit in us and we have become and he longs jealously over us like a husband longs for his wife. Both of these things are true. This is why pride is so dangerous. The self-centeredness, because it is fueling in us this desire to lust after the things of the world that are causing this divide in our body and this divide between us and in our relationship with God. It's, it's kind of, it's going to be like this. I have a little movie for you. This is a movie of a hydraulic log splitter. Have you ever used one of these? It's going to be slow-mo too. You're going to enjoy it. Rendering. Pause. I don't know if you can pause. Pause. Okay. Do you see? See, I, I'm not like a, like I, I'm not very good with machines. So if some, does anyone in here know about hydraulics? If you know about hydraulics, how they work. I think, Rich, you know about hydraulics. There he is. Okay. So I'm going to make eye contact with you as I explain this to everyone. And you can just nod if I'm sort of on base, and you can just nod yes even if I'm not. Okay? Okay. So a on a hydraulic log splitter, there is, is an engine. Okay? Now, nah, Okay, good. Okay. And this engine helps to fuel and pressurize oil to press something, still right, into the log that causes the log to be pressed into the wedge. Okay, I got it. A hydraulic log splitter, everybody. And you saw how this log was being pressed, right? This fueled engine was creating this oil pressure that was causing the hydraulic to press. That's literally the picture of what lust for the world does in us. And it presses us, and there is a splitting point. And we're going to be pressed into this place where we were once unified and together and intimately intertwined with Christ, and we begin to be split. That's why James is saying that this, this pride, this, uh, this adultery, this self-centeredness, that it's fueling this divide that is breaking and splitting apart the very thing that Jesus Christ died for. 
so that you could have unity with God, that your spirit, the human spirit and the Holy Spirit would become as one and you'd be a new person, that as you go down this road of living for the world, that it's splitting what God put together, that there's a divide that is coming. Who's ready for some good news? Okay. Here's the good news. It's this, that a Christ-centered or a godly perspective, it fuels a love-driven transformation. So we can literally go, right, just in the same way. It's this simple, okay? I, I promise you, it's this simple, but it's not this easy, that you can go from wearing a perspective of self-centeredness and taking it off and putting on a perspective of Christ-centeredness. It's that simple. And you can experience a love-driven transformation in yourself and with those around you. That if we're just willing to take off these glasses and to put them on the ground and to crush these glasses, that he is faithful and he is gracious enough to transform us by the power of his love. Look at what it says in verse 6. Remember, this is right on the back of verse 5 where he's talking about the desire of the human spirit being to envy and to lust and that God and then that the God desires jealously over us. And if we go with the first version of, you know, it, it, our desires to lust. And sometimes this desire is strong and this desire is powerful. But guess what? Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. No matter how strong you're feeling pulled or your desire is to be in the world, that if you will humble yourself, his grace is even stronger. If you've gone down that road and you've lived in the world and you've committed adultery against God and you're like, but it's so hard and the pull is so strong, God's grace is stronger. He desires for us to be transformed, to be transfigured into the likeness of his son. When we talk about his grace, it's literally this empowerment of favor in our life. He's like, yeah, I know, I know you desire this, and you're going after this, but the empowerment and the favor I want to show you is even greater. It's stronger. My hydraulic wood splitter is bigger. It is better that I'm going to do something in you, but it's not going to split us apart. It's going to bind us together once again. It's simple. He says, therefore it says... That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it is the picture. We talk about this all the time. It's God resisting the proud, but it's not. It's kind of going along with the war metaphor again. It's not this like, uh, like uh, resist, resist. It's putting on this full battle armor ready to throw down. That's the resistance that is being talked about. It's this war picture that God is suiting up, ready for battle, ready for war against those who are proud. I've, I've been reading, is anyone familiar with who Brother Lawrence is? 
Brother Lawrence, he wrote a book about practicing the presence of God. And, you know, the, the book kind of makes him sound like this wimpy guy with, like, issues. But he was, he was a, a man of war. And the reason why, he talks about him having a bad leg and a limp. And uh, it talks about this because he was literally in a town and he got invaded and people wrecked him and, and they left him hurt and and he had this limp after that and but but brother lawrence i was reading uh his book probably two or three times and just meditating on some of the things that were being uh, taught in there some of the concepts and he talks about something that that brought this thought to me and it's this humility right so if god opposes the proud full battle but he gives grace to the humble okay humble humility that humility, the humility is literally the initiator and indicator of our intimacy with God. Humility in our life, as we walk in humility, that when you see humility on someone, that that is an indicator that they have intimacy with God. How can one not be humbled by coming into the presence of God? This is what Brother Lawrence talks about. How can someone come before the throne room and leave with any amount of pride still left in them? And this brings this perspective that when we see people acting out in pride and in arrogance and self-centeredness and, and bringing glory to themselves, that it should break our heart because they don't have intimacy with God. Do you have humility that's prevalent in your life? Not the kind that you have to, you're trying to work that people see, but there's just that comes out of you. That when you come into God's presence that you feel so humbled, but it's accompanied with this boldness. Because it's an indicator. He will empower his people. Amen. He gives grace, and it doesn't, it's not that he gives grace to everyone. He doesn't empower everyone. Do you see what it says? That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It, that's what kicks everything off. There is such a power in humility, guys. There is such a God-ordained power in our humility. If we can ask God for one thing, in this place, in this church, in our life. It's not that we would be powerful, it's that we would be humble. Because everything will flow out of that place of humility. The empowerment will come from there. The anointing will come from that place. The intimacy will come and be driven from a place of humility. That needs to be our cry to God. That's what we need to travail for in this place. That God, make us a humble people that something beautiful will be birthed from us. I hope that in this next season, that, 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 is, that is our focus. That's what we long for. That's what we yearn for. That's what we fight for at every turn, to be humble, that God may empower us with his grace. And so now Pastor Yaakov, as he's writing this, he, he gets into this place where he starts to write out a prescription. 
So how do we do this? How, how do we, well, we start by humbling ourselves because grace and empowerment is coming and he gives a few very practical ways for us to take off our self-centered perspective and to put on the correct perspective. The first thing he says this is to submit to God. Submission is literally this picture of arranging ourselves underneath. It starts with submission to God. This is a fruit of humility, submission. If someone isn't submissive, it's because they don't possess the, the root. That's humility. One of the fun things about being a dad is I get to watch a bunch of cartoons that I used to watch, but now they've all been updated and animated. You know what I mean? And one uh, that my boys love, I know this is going to surprise you, is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, that's why my son Louie wears a green headband and his little sport coat wherever he goes. And there's this one, there's this, this movie, I think it's on Netflix, where uh, there's some conflict going on between Raphael and someone else. can't remember who. He's, Raphael's one of the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, yep. And there's a blue one. What's the blue one? Leonardo, right? You guys watch it too. Don't even, don't even pretend. Yeah, I see you back there. Yeah, I know. You're like, yep, guilty. And there's this conflict going on, right? Just like we're reading about in James. And we have good old Master Splinter. And Leonardo, he's worked up. He's, he has this perspective on and he's pacing back and forth. And Master Splinter tells him to do something. They go into this room, this quiet place, and he says, kneel before me. And you see as he's raged, he gets on his knees before his master and he... You see the peace start to come back as he's in that quiet place kneeling before his master. And I'm watching this and I'm like crying as my sons are trying to jump off the couch onto me with their knees going into my mouth. <laughs> and it's, it was the, it's this beautiful picture of submission. Even in our fuming, even in our worldly perspective, that if we're just willing to follow our Father to the quiet place where we will kneel before him, his grace will be more than enough for us. That he will be the one, as we're sitting there broken, tormented, and destroyed, who pulls off our glasses and puts on a prescription we can see clearly with. He's the one who does the work. See, the beautiful part about this restoration process that we're going to go through about submitting to God, that we are the ones who have to initiate, but he's the one who completes. That if we're just willing to take the step and say, God, here I am, he will do all the work. I should have mentioned this at the beginning part. James is literally going through some of the things that Jesus was talking about with the Sermon on the Mount. Anger, lust, divorce, enemies. He's bringing up all this language that Jesus took from Exodus 20. And he's saying, if you just come before the Lord, he will do the work. The first step is submit yourself to God. And then you got to do something else. You have to resist the devil. It's crazy that God 
would believe in us so much that we can resist the devil. So you got to resist the devil. See, a typical mindset is, God, you have to resist the devil. He is not God's equal in any way. He's not his opposite equal in any way. Do you get what I'm saying? That because of God's spirit is in us, that he says, no, you, Nick Massey, can resist the devil. I, uh, there's a young man who I love dearly, and uh, we were talking about this. Some lies were coming into his mind. And we're talking about resisting the devil. And, and <laughs> I really felt led by the spirit in this moment. I told him to stand up, and I said, I want you to resist me right now. Physically. He's strong, I, I promise you. He's, he's a very strong young man. And so we start pushing, shoving, and resisting. Where finally, we both end up on the ground. See, God is creating in us a new desire to war. And to not be afraid to walk in war like he said that we could. Because what happens is when we are willing to resist, not just like, shoo, go away, but when we're willing to get hands-on, because we're already submitted to God, we've humbled ourselves. Listen, if you try to go hand-to-hand combat with, with the devil before you humble yourself, you are ready to get wrecked. It has to start with humility. And we humble ourselves and we submit ourselves to God. The empowerment starts to come and we can resist the things of the devil and it says that he will flee from you. He will run away from you, Nick Massey. He will run away from you, Jess Acevedo. He will run away from you, Mike and Frank and Brenda. And he will flee from you. From you. Because of what you possess. I, I want us to get humility so much in this season because this is, is all the fruit of what happens when we humble ourselves. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So you got it so far? We can submit. We resist. We fight that battle. And then what do we do? We draw near to God. We initiate again. We draw near to God. God, I'm humbling myself before you. I'm bowing before you. I'm submitting to you. Okay, now I'm going to fight this world. I'm going to fight what's been going on. And I'm not going to stay there and stand in my own triumph. But I'm going to come back into that secret place. And I'm going to get before the Lord. And I'm going to draw near to God. And the promise is when we initiate in this way, that every single time, 100% that he will in return draw near to us. There's also this marriage symbolism in there that I don't have time to go into, but it's drawing together in intimacy in this moment, knowing and trusting that when he says he will empower us when we humble ourselves, that he will do it. So what does it look like to draw near? He goes, you know, a typical pastor thing or Baptist pastor thing, I guess. You know, you have three points, and then you have four subpoints, and then you have five more subpoints. This is what he's doing. So he's saying, here's, here's the heading. What you can do is you can uh, you submit to God, resist the devil, and draw near. Now here's some subpoints. This is how you draw near. The first thing, he says, draw near, and you draw near to cleanse your hands, you sinners. 
Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I love the way the NLT says this because it takes it back to the world that it's this uh, picture and it says, um, let, me, let me try to find the way it says. Oh, it says, your loyalty is divided between God and the world. That's how it defines what double-minded is. Your loyalty is divided. Just like a spouse, you, you love your spouse, but you also love this person. Don't be double-minded in that way. Cleanse, purify, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. And it says that he will exalt you. When it talks about purifying and cleansing, it's this picture of Psalm 51.7 where David cries out for the same thing. In Psalm 51.7, David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Who's the one who does the purging? God. We just have to draw near. The way we purify ourselves is allowing ourselves to be purged by God. That's how we do it. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. Who's doing the washing? God. And I shall be whiter than snow. See, hyssop, when David's talking about this, hyssop is a cleansing agent. It's an antiseptic that there was oil that would help cleanse. So we see that uh, this was used both in Passover, remember? We just celebrated Passover. That they would dip hyssop in the blood. And so you have this picture of blood and oil coming together. Okay, are we getting close to some baptisms being put over the doorpost? That we are purged and we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. That when we draw near to him, that he is the one who's going to wash us. The way we purify ourselves is inviting God to wash us. Coming before him in confession and letting the oil of the Holy Spirit be poured upon our head. Letting the blood of Christ come over us and cover us once again. He talks about mourning. I'm not going to go into it, but in 2 Corinthians 10.8, it talks about what godly sorrow looks like. Write this down. 2 Corinthians 10.8. Earnestness and eagerness to clear ourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, readiness, proving ourselves innocent. This is what godly sorrow looks like. He's like, mourn. There should be a, a godly sorrow that is demonstrated when you actually come to me in true humility. There should be a mourning because like we were seeing this morning, there's a death that takes place inside of us, dead to the things of the world that we're allowing those things to be cut off. And we are mourning and we're coming to God. The last part. He says, humble yourself before the Lord again, and he will exalt you. And see, this is the beginning. This is what we were talking about when we are facing injustice and we want to exalt ourselves and we want to be self-centered, that if we will just trust the kingdom, the ways of the Lord, that he will exalt us. 
when we see exaltation, we get two pictures. First, it's Christ being lifted up on the cross. Experiencing a death. That he loved us, that he's willing to pour out his life for us, and he experienced this death. And like we've been talking about, we will experience this death in the world. So it talks about being exalted in that way. But then after that, it says that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father. If we are just willing to humble ourselves before God, to take off a worldly self-centered perspective, to put on a godly Christ-centered perspective, we will experience the same transforming, transfiguring love that Jesus knew and we will be standing in peace and restoration with God at his right hand. Can we ask for that together right now? Why don't you stand with me? If you're in here and you desperately, you need a perspective change right now, we're going to put this in, into practice right now. If you've been walking in a way that is self-centered, that your lust for the world, that your lust is fueling a divide between you and others and you and God, and you're saying, God, I don't want any part of that anymore. I don't want to be justified more than for you to be glorified. I don't want the absence of my problem more than your beautiful presence. If you're at that place, I just want you to invite you to come forward right now. And we are going to ask God to do a work in us today, that there's going to be a new perspective that's going to translate to every area of our life. I believe, I believe this is the, the boldness, the, the humble boldness that he's going to impart to us today. Is there anyone else who's saying, I've, I've had a, on a perspective that is bringing me in more into the world, more into death, and God, I want to be set free? Come on, come closer, come closer. Saints who are standing back, just begin to intercede right now in this moment. Just begin to stretch out your hands and to intercede in this moment. My friends, just begin humbling yourself before the Lord, confessing before the Lord, letting the oil of his spirit being poured out on you right now. Come on, no fear in this moment. Don't be afraid of how you're going to look. Humble yourself. He is the good master who is going to lead you. God, I pray for an impartation of bold humility right now in your spirit. God, an impartation of divine intimacy with you that will leave us humble and will lead us confident, God.
God, I pray for ancient wars to be broken in Jesus' name because of humility that is taking place in the heart of your people. God, that recent battles would be cut off right now in Jesus' name because a bold humility is rising up. God, that there wouldn't be a divide any longer, but there would be a bond once again through intimacy with you, Jesus. God, we claim right now that your grace is stronger. Your grace is stronger than our need to be justified. Your grace is stronger than our desire to receive accolades from the world, that your empowerment is so much better, God. So I pray for a new Christ-centered perspective right now in Jesus' name. Lord, allow that to fall upon us in every situation. Let us see clearly right now, God. Lord, we want to see clearly. We want to submit ourselves to you. Cleanse us with hyssop. Wash us clean. God, so that our perspective can be pure and sun-centered, Jesus. God, we receive all these things in faith. We know this is your desire. Your word says it. We believe it. We're not going to be afraid. We're not going to be tricked into believing anything else. God, we know that the way to exaltation in whatever we're facing is through humility. So God, would this be a daily reminder, Lord, that we need to put on the perspective, a Christ-centered perspective that is going to fuel a love transformation inside of us, Jesus. We love you in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Spend time up here. Spend time up here. Let's continue just to get our hearts right with the Lord. Uh, everyone else, if, if you could just respect the space and, and what the Lord is doing. Uh, we love you guys, and then we'll see you here soon.